Welcome to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. We are on a mission to transform healthcare where all equally benefit by building a robust, dynamic, diverse community. So glad you could join us. Welcome everyone to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. I am Michael Mann. When I'm not doing this, I'm working uh, at DeSanti, running their healthcare practice, growing our healthcare practice and talent acquisition. And we do retain search, executive search, as well as staff augmentation and contract to hire. We have a special guest here today, Craig Lipset. And uh, I he, he told me he did not want me to read his bio. So I'm not going to read it all. But I want for those who might not be seeing us or not those who might not be familiar with Craig, it's very important you hear what he's done. And uh, Craig Lipset leads innovation in clinical research and medicine development. He is an advisor to technology biopharma companies, leading universities, and the venture community. He brings his vision and drive action at the intersection of research, digital solutions, and patient engagement. Craig was the head of clinical innovation and venture partner at Pfizer. He was the founding operations committee for Transalert Biopharma and on the founding management teams for two successful startup ventures, Perceptive Informatics and Adnesics Therapeutics. During the time, Craig designed and launched multiple industry firsts from the first fully remote virtual clinical trial for a new medicine to the first returning of results and data to research participants. He's on multiple boards, one of which is the directors for the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance co-chair. He's the foundation for Sarcosis Research and the MedStar Health Research Institute, as well as on the editorial board for therape Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science. Craig is also an adjunct assistant professor in health informatics at Rutgers University and an adjunct instructor at the University of Rochester Center for Health and Technology. Craig has received the Red Jacket Hall of Fame recognition among the pharma voice, most inspiring people in the life sciences. He has been recognized among pharmaceutical executive emerging leaders, CenterWatch top 20 innovators in clinical trials, the Medicine Maker, Power List, and the Alley Watch, Who's Who in eHealth. Not only did he earn a master's in public health from Columbia, but one thing you probably did not know is he's a musician and studied at Brandeis. So much of to do. Let's get going. And here we are going to talk about clinical trial innovation. And we have Craig. Too Great much to, to do, Michael. <laughs> I think the only person left listening is my mother. It's good <laughs> to be here with you today. Thanks so much for this uh, invitation. Well, it's awesome having you. And let's just first get uh, talking about just clinical trials, just the basic definition, stakeholders, cause, process, if you could help our audience just understand the basics. Absolutely. So when we're talking about clinical trials, we're talking about research studies that involve 
introducing some kind of intervention. So there are different types of research studies. We could do some, for example, that are purely observational, where we're just watching how different people respond to things in the real world. When we talk about clinical trials, we're introducing some sort of intervention, and mostly we're talking about randomized clinical trials and those places where we're uh, we're randomizing people to receive either uh, some perhaps some new medicine and another arm that might be receiving the standard of care, or in some cases is some other type of control. I know we talk a lot about, or we hear talk a lot about placebo arms in studies or sugar pills in some of these studies, but by and large, for most clinical trials today, people aren't necessarily getting a, a placebo. They're getting what we would call an active control, meaning routine care, the same treatment you might have gotten from your doctor if you weren't in a study versus people getting some new medicine. Now, for the types of clinical trials I'm involved in, these are new medicines that aren't yet approved. And so I tend to focus on clinical trials for investigational new medicines, working with researchers from universities and from different pharma and biotech companies to understand the efficacy and safety of those new medicines. And when we think about the stakeholders that are involved in this process, there are a lot of them. It is definitely like a, a little shared economy of different stakeholders involved. So certainly um, we'll have uh, pharma or biotech uh, as a research sponsor. They might have discovered and developed that new medicine, or maybe they licensed it from somewhere else. Uh, they're often working together with research sites. And those research sites could be at universities. They could be at your local doctor's office. They could be at research um, site networks, like um, kind of freestanding research sites that don't provide ordinary care. All they do is run research studies. And we can talk about some of the more expansive places that research can be taking place today, like in pharmacies or even in your own home. So we have pharma and biotech. We have those research sponsors. We have regulators involved in countries around the world, regulators like the FDA or their peers in Europe and Asia and in other regions. Uh, we have different types of technology and service providers in the mix, uh, groups that we call contract research organizations, CROs that provide a lot of management and coordination services. And then of course, we have the people, the participants, the patients, the healthy volunteers who choose to step forward to participate. There's some groups that call these folks our medical heroes. They're the ones that are um, embracing some bit of burden and they're taking in some cases a little bit of risk. Um, but in some cases, this is to pay it forward. In other cases, this is to receive hope and an opportunity for a better treatment option for individuals, whether with a chronic or an acute medical condition. So a lot of different stakeholders involved in making it happen. Um, this is notoriously a very long and expensive process to get a new medicine from the laboratory into a commercial setting where your doctor can prescribe it can easily take eight, 10 years. Um, in some cases that can be compressed for some types of populations. Um, you know, certainly uh, as we saw in the COVID vaccine days, 
right, in terms of the ability to really accelerate development cycles and timelines. But usually we're talking about phase one, phase two, phase three studies moving from healthy volunteers to understand the safety of a medicine and the right dose, moving it into phase two where we're looking in larger populations. We know our dose, but we're still focused very much on safety and then moving into phase three, larger populations and really trying to see the efficacy and always the safety if this drug is actually making some sort of improvement. This is an expensive proposition, um, and that's where a lot of capital-intensive work is required for either venture-backed uh, biotech or your large pharma to make it happen. Some of these studies can start three, five, seven million dollars for some of the big ones that are going after large populations and cardiovascular disease or vaccines. These are tens of millions. In some cases, it's not surprising to see one study that could be a hundred million dollars. So this is not for the faint of heart in terms of economics. Craig, I feel like I just got a, a master's degree in clinical trials. I think you laid out all the stakeholders, the processes that I, I just, uh, I think that was a great starting point. And so since you got the good groundwork, I would love for you to share with our audience just maybe some of the challenges in this space and the difficulties, because we're going to talk about good stuff the rest of the time after this. Ten minutes to your master's degree, Michael. By the time we're done today, <laughs> you'll have your doctorate. <laughs> you're going to be all set up and running. Um, so, like the, uh, the challenges and difficulties. For one, we always have to keep in mind there are two very real and significant guardrails when it comes to anything we're trying to do with clinical trials. Sometimes people think there are lots of different rules, requirements, and guardrails around a clinical trial. In truth, there are two, patient safety and data integrity. Like These are the immovable objects for us when we're trying to do different things in a clinical trial or to understand what medicine works and what doesn't. We always have to have proper systems in place to measure and monitor patient safety and to be able to intervene if there's any signal that things are not going right. And data integrity. The reason why we're doing these studies is to generate data about evidence of efficacy and safety. And if we don't generate data that we can trust and rely on for decision making, then it would be unethical to do the study in the first place. Right. And so these are our big guardrails. And then for operators in this space, there are very real challenges that exist, uh, primarily around study enrollment and recruitment, trying to bring people into the research universe. There's a funnel we'll often think about that starts with awareness for different patient populations about research, straight through to helping them to get invited into different research studies to be considered for screening and eligibility. Our eligibility criteria, the criteria we use to determine who is right for a study can be very restrictive. And so at the bottom of that funnel, it gets very tough to find individuals who actually can match and participate. And then that last barrier around that recruitment funnel, funnel is just access. 
even if we find a person and we make them aware about research and they consider a study and they're willing to share data and they're willing to step forward and make an informed decision and participate, can they take the time and the effort to participate? If it requires additional visits to a medical clinic, if that means time off from work, childcare responsibilities, travel burden or otherwise. And so that recruitment phase is, is definitely material. I think the other big challenge that clinical researchers are grappling with today is just around diversity of data, and data flow, and data management in general. Um, we used to have clinical trials where every patient had a book, and this book had case report forms in it. It was basically a triplicate form, and the investigator would have their pen, and they would write everything down in this book, and they'd tear off a copy, and we'd send it off to get entered into a data management system somewhere, and that was our data flow. And today, we have electronic data capture systems that researchers are entering things in. We have patients with mobile apps that they're entering diary data. We have some patients that are wearing a device on their wrist, transmitting data. Maybe we're trying to link to their real-world data, their electronic health record at their medical center, and bring that in. There can be a lot of different data sources well, that we're trying to manage and bring Craig, I, I don't want to do a TV timeout, but I just want to let our audience know that we have a really amazing uh, clinical uh, trial expert, Craig, here. So please, if you have a question that you'd like answered, we got plenty in the audience. Uh, Craig knows his stuff here. I don't know how many people he's talked to up on the stage. Uh, you've done a lot of this. You've worked with so many uh, different, um, you know. So anyway, this is an opportunity uh, to, to really uh, get some more uh, knowledge going. And so I just, I would love to, we had some audiences share prior and I just want them to know that they are more than welcome to chime in. And so I want to hear That's from you. Great, Michael. And the questions I'd love to hear from you if you're curious about the process or you have an idea about why do clinical trials take so long or you have a, a thought or an idea about why don't clinical trials use certain types of technologies or other approaches, um, bring it and let's uh, let's talk about it. All those. right. We have John Warner. He said it'd be good to talk about good diversity in clinical trials and balanced uh, phenotypes. Thank you, John Warner, a good friend of mine. I can really say we've met in person and he knows me and I know him. Awesome. Take it away, Craig. Great, great topic. You know, Clinical trial diversity is, is definitely a hot topic just over the last, uh, say, two, three years between the pandemic as well as uh, very public reactions around social justice have really driven an acute spotlight on the traditional lack of diversity and representation in clinical trials. And that matters, right? Because if your clinical trial is just enrolling people that look like me, then the evidence that we're generating is really just about people like me. And that evidence we're generating is what not only regulators are going to be using, but your doctors are going to be using to, ter to determine what's the right treatment for you. What type of positive response or efficacy could we expect to see? What's the type of safety or the safe specific safety concerns that we need to be cognizant of and monitoring of when we're making different treatment decisions? Now, 
diversity in clinical trials isn't like a new thing that nobody appreciated before, but it's a, been a big challenge. And it's been a big challenge for a number of reasons, not the least of which is just historical lack of trust in research because of some communities, the uh, Black community in the U.S., um, other communities, Native American communities in the U.S., um, a number of just you know misdeeds from researchers in the past. Um, and by the past, I don't mean, you know, tremendously long historical past. This can be as recently as the era of Henrietta Lacks um, and the, uh, the, the story that was popularized in both movie as well as uh, streaming, uh, the, the book by Rebecca Sloot, the, um, the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. This is a story of a, of, a, of a black woman in Baltimore with cervical cancer who went to receive care at Johns Hopkins, obviously a premier medical center in this country, and in the course of um, of her diagnosis, some of her cells were uh, were captured during the course of a biopsy. Unfortunately, Henrietta didn't survive um, her her cancer, but her cells and from that uh, specimen that was collected, it was retained and it was used for research. And it was used for research because the cells were remarkable. They kept reproducing. They re reproduced like nothing like that had really been seen and retained before. So much so that to, to this day, literal tons of Henrietta Lacks's cells have been copied and reproduced and distributed for research around the world, which is an incredible milestone except for one problem. No one ever asked Henrietta Lacks or her family if they could use these cells. In fact, they had no idea in the family that the cells with the, the, with the, with the molecular profile of their family was being used by researchers around the world. There's a name for those cells. It's called the HeLa cell line, H-E, capital L-A, which stood for Henrietta Lacks. Um, and so the HeLa cell line has been remarkable and it's credited with supporting medical breakthroughs from cancer to infectious disease to other chronic conditions. There are people around the world whose lives have been improved by this, but unfortunately it all traces back to a breach of trust with um, with a black woman in Baltimore who went to receive care and who left having her cells that represent her family being so widely distributed. Now, the the story of the Lacks family, I also find remarkable for this reason. Um, I had the opportunity uh, a couple of years ago to meet a number of uh, the Lacks family members. You know, that first generation, I think when they first heard about this, when you read their story, they were angry and they felt, you know, they felt like something was taken from them without permission. Um, and the second generation back, started to engage. And you see these examples with leaders like Francis Collins from the NIH actually working very closely with members of that family to, um, to include them when they were starting to figure out mapping of the human genome and how to responsibly use data. Three generations down, now you see family members like uh, uh, great granddaughters or great nieces that are are working in healthcare and becoming nurses, right? And so it's a reminder to me that when we breach trust, we could do it like that. It's that easy, and it takes generations to recover from that. And so 
for all these reasons, it's been hard for us to just snap our fingers and engage with communities that have lost trust in medical research. We have to partner in smart ways within communities to earn trust back, and that takes time and that takes commitment, which is one of the reasons why prior to the last three years, there really hadn't been a lot of progress. When we have an individual study running, we just need results. We need people to participate. We're not really there for the long term to earn back trust. Fast forward to today, and it is different. You're seeing life sciences companies that are making meaningful long-term investments. They're partnering with us, uh, with HCBUs, historical uh, black colleges and universities in the United States to help to grow a generation and raise a generation of researchers that look like people in diverse communities, and not just the investigators, but coordinators and other staff. And so this is all a net positive, and it's so important for us because now we can have more confidence, if successful, that the data that we're generating is truly representative. Now, late last year, in December of last year, the omnibus spending bill was uh, was approved in Congress, Fedora, and in there, uh, we saw embedded certain language that came out of bills with names like the Diverse Trials Act and the DEPICT Act. Those pieces of legislation started to create policy that required efforts around diversity in clinical trials. Also last year, we saw the FDA introduce a guidance document, a guidance document around diversity in clinical trials that's now requiring drug developers to have a diversity action plan that they have to submit to the regulators for their new clinical trials, a plan that lays out who are the populations that they need to include to have representation based on the disease area they're studying, and what are the strategies they're going to deploy those tactics that can actually help in, uh, to tr increase the probability that we can actually have representative populations enrolled. If there's one thing we learned during those vaccine trials in the pandemic is that we can do this. It's not insurmountable. We can earn trust. We can extend invitations to people, and we can make sure that our trials are accessible for folks wherever they may be. Well, Craig, I love how you shared the timeline experience with how we're kind of trying to make up for lost time with really uh, empowering those of diversity and really recognizing them, including them, and actually giving them the consent and, and informing them, more importantly. But uh, some others, as we started getting comments, we had Jane Miles, who I can tell you, I just had a call with her a few months ago. Awesome I, I know you probably know her as a best friend. I think you could call her as a friend of, of your friends in the clinical trial space. But she has a question, just sort of a simple question. What's the difference between healthcare and clinical trials? Yeah, Jane, I've, uh, I only met about uh, 30 years ago now. So we, we've only just gotten to know each other. But I think in the next couple of years, we'll, we'll get around to, you know, actually having a little more trust in that relationship. But uh, so this is a great question, because right now, the difference between healthcare and clinical trials is pretty significant. Um, and what do I mean by that? We go to our doctor, we, we have a medical problem, they're helping us to manage it. We know what that looks like in terms of going to my doctor's office or other types of primary care or specialty settings. If a clinical research study, a clinical trial is right for me, 
all of that ecosystem kind of gets thrown out and exactly parallel alternatives start to be introduced. It's almost like bizarro healthcare gets introduced, right? We take that person who a minute ago was my doctor wearing a white lab coat and I have known them and trusted them for a while and we replace them with an investigator also wearing a white lab coat, it's like just a different variant of the same like archetype. And that electronic health record that that person was using, well, we kind of swap that with like a bizarro version of that in electronic case report form. And we take their, their nurse and we kind of swap them with somebody who's a nurse, but also a study coordinator and kind of everything incrementally shifts. And an important milestone of that shift is this informed consent document that's presented to me very often as a clipboard with a lot of legalese language that's presented to me often, unfortunately, in a time of acute stress for me to have to decide if I'm going to participate in this study. And if I put pen to paper and sign that, then all of this stuff kind of changes on me. It's it's pretty, there's a lot of friction to make this change happen. And that's unfortunate. And there's a lot of effort and interest right now in this in, in this intersection. And there's jargon out there of clinical research as a care option. How do we make this more fluid, more interoperable between the clinical care world and the research world? How do I not yank the patient out of this familiar environment with their provider who's using these particular systems and just kind of make research more accessible in that setting? It involves us being able to plug in more effectively into electronic health records. It involves us being more open and expansive about the places where research can take place. Um, it involves us fixing, unfortunately, some misalignment economic incentives so that different doctors can feel more confident talking to their patients about a research study without fearing that that's going to hurt their RVUs and start to leak patients from their practice, which is certainly unfortunately counterproductive in this country. But there are ways for us to address this today and hopefully start to bridge this chasm that we've created that makes clinical care and clinical research have this, this artificial wall. Wow. So you got another question that I think is interesting from Doug Sullivan, a friend of mine as well. And and I, I, I'm not friends with everyone, but I try not to have enemies. But Doug is a friend. And uh, it's a long question. I'm having trouble without my glasses on. But I basically it looks like a lot about wearables and connected health and improving treatment. And I guess the last question I can sort of read, will we actually see better management and communication in between clinical visits? And I guess I imagine using uh, wearables and apps. So uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned you're not wearing your glasses. I'm like sleeping back to read the question on my screen <laughs> as you're saying that. Um, so yeah, as far as the role of apps and wearables and what will the impact be in terms of better management and communication between visits is a great question. I'm going to lean the answer, Doug, into this topic of today around clinical trials rather than necessarily what it means for clinical care. I don't claim to be an expert in all things healthcare, but clinical trials are 
longer space, I've, I've spent more than a minute. Um, so in terms of connected devices and uh, mobile tools, we've certainly seen a lot of adoption around mobile tools for clinical trials today. There is a rich history of using diaries and self-reporting of data in clinical trials. And that history has included uh, a long period of time of folks getting used to using mobile devices for patients to be able to self-enter and self-report data when they're in a trial. Um, industry is like that for years because it, it streamlined data capture, but we also don't like a lot of free text in our studies. We kind of like answers, but we like them to be predictable. And when we give people pen and, and paper and send them home, they sometimes had a tendency to write a lot of other observations in the borders, which just became kind of a data management uh, nightmare in terms of trying to read and manage. So for a number of reasons, including our ability to time and date stamp when people would provide their responses so that we knew they weren't just trying to reminisce about how they felt over the last 30 days when they were in the waiting room for their next visit, but instead we could actually have more confidence again in that theme of data integrity. So mobile tools for data capture, people have gotten very comfortable with in terms of apps for years. Connected devices or wearables and sensors, it's a little newer for a lot of industry. There's been a lot of uptake and investment, but it's hardly as mainstream as our use of just mobile apps for self-reporting of data. We're seeing this being used for both what I would call the familiar, the known data, as well as the less familiar, the, the newer, less known data. So what do I mean by that? Maybe I just need heart rate, respiratory rate, a single lead ECG. A lot of those things I can get from a connected device, as long as I have confidence and validation around how it's measuring. I keep going like this with my wrist because I'm wearing a, a whipping scan watch right now, right? And I could put my fingers on the bezel and, and take some different measurements. But very often, I'm also curious about a little less known things to measure, right? Maybe I'm monitoring people with a movement disorder and I want to understand how their gait is and if they're shuffling or what their steps are looking like. Well, I can start to monitor that as well with different types of connected devices and sensors. Now, where this all boils down in terms of this question is, is this going to make it easier for us to stay connected with people between visits? And I'm going to say a little bit of yes and no. It's going to mean we can get better a better picture of what's going on in someone's life between visits. And that is a great thing. But if used incorrectly, it can actually make people feel less connected to their care team and their providers. If they're just getting a, a box with a bunch of gadgets that they don't really know how to use or where the data goes, and it's very easy for somebody to actually feel less connectivity. So there needs to be a deliberate effort right? Because if done right with an app and a device, somebody should feel more connection to their research team, to their nurses, to their doctors, feeling like they're more accessible, like they're right there and keeping tabs on me. So I would encourage those that are enthusiastic about these approaches to go a click beyond just sticking a connected watch in your trial and really making sure you're investing that time with patients, not only so that the device works and it collects data, but that you're really thinking through, how do I have to deploy this in a way that a person feels more more connection, more confidence, more comfort that the study team is there with them. Craig, 
you just really gave me some insight and I made a connection with my mom who's 84. I think that would drive her crazy. She would feel less connected, more disconnected, more frustrated rather than having note cards or something that she could mail. I mean, it's 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 totally the user experience. So that was a great point. Uh, right. And we know this, right? We can have an app that's just asking somebody a bunch of questions, right? It's Thursday. Here's 20 questions. Hit your answers and walk away. Or are we giving people an opportunity to chat with their study coordinator or open a video session with their investigator and making it more interactive so that they feel like I have more access to my care team, not that my interaction with my care team is just being replaced with some gadget. Craig, uh, this gentleman, Michael Mann, has this question. He put it up on the screen about this digital twin nonsense or real, the virtual digital twin, is this real? Do Are we gonna see it possibly in four to seven years in clinical trial space? This guy, Michael Mann, wow, I kinda <laughs> like this question. I'm, I'm guessing he's a friend of yours again. Yeah. Um, well, you can let Michael know that, you know, for those that aren't familiar, uh, this idea of a digital twin um, really picks up on the theme of how can we use different types of real world data, electronic health record data, data from other sources. When researchers use the term real world data, basically that def the definition of real world data is any data about a patient that's not coming from a clinical trial. It's basically an acknowledgement that a clinical trial isn't the real world. It's this fictional little bubble that we've created in a controlled environment. Real world data is the data we'll capture from everywhere or anywhere else. And what's been interesting is how can we use that type of data coupled together with AI and other types of modeling, predictive or otherwise, can we start to create synthetic patients or synthetic data in our trial that can start to emulate um, how people would have responded? You know, this notion of a digital twin also isn't necessarily new. If for those of you maybe in engineering or mechanical engineering, you know, um, Companies like GE have had digital twins of airplane motors for years, right? They strap an airplane motor with sensors and in a controlled environment, they can see everything that's going on on that airplane engine without having to be riding on the wing of the plane up in the sky while it's doing its work. And the question here is, can we create a digital twin of Michael Mann. And if I created a digital twin of, is that scary? Uh, if I created a digital twin of Michael Mann, well, what, what, what data would I need to have about that? Well, I'd probably need to have some historical data from Michael and I'd have to have data on other people, maybe like my Michael and have that data for a longer period of time to understand how they progressed. And then what could I do with that? Well, one of the aspirations might be, let's say Michael's enrolling in a clinical trial and we're going to maybe introduce a new medicine to see how Michael responds. And I want to have a control arm in my trial, but what if Michael's digital twin is in the control arm of that trial? And so what if instead of me having to go find a guy named Craig and randomize him to be in the control arm while Michael gets the investigational medicine, what if Michael's in both arms of the study where it's his 
actual self in one arm and his digital per self in the other. That digital self that through modeling and other technology, we're able to anticipate how it would have responded without getting that new medicine um, involved. So these are really exciting times. We're seeing some really interesting companies out there that are developing a lot of these digital twin methodologies for a number of different use cases to improve design and planning. Uh, we're seeing these heavy in the neurosciences and areas like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And we've seen a lot of receptivity from regulators in the US and in Europe. This is great to see. We're seeing academic curiosity. We're seeing scientific uh, receptivity to these approaches. And so if, if the question here from that Michael Mann guy is four to seven years, yeah, I would say that in the next five years, we're going to start to see some clinical trials that are using these. And here's why. Our ability to validate these types of methods, it's not that hard. It's hard to develop a digital twin for sure. But to actually validate it, I could actually run a study with basically two arms and I'm adding a third. I run a clinical trial just like I ordinarily would, have Michael enrolled and find a guy like Craig to be in the control arm. Um, and then I'll create a digital twin of Michael and I'll put it over there in a third arm of the study that I'll use for validation purposes. And I could do this over and again with different studies and really start to understand and learn, do I get to the same answer, whether I'm comparing Michael to Craig as a control or whether it's Michael to digital Michael as a control? Wow, um, I, I'm just gonna stop at that. I'm not even gonna respond uh, that was awesome. And uh, we don't need any more Michaels. All right. So is there a place for AI generative AI chat GPT? I have to just say that, right? That's just got to get some buzz here. So, uh, like, I mean, there's great use cases for AI. We talked about one just now with digital twins, and there are others around predictive analytics to improve quality. We're seeing a lot of great use cases uh, for AI that can help to improve our endpoints by coming up with different types of digital endpoints and digital measurements for our studies. We're seeing great use cases for AI that just automate processes in our trials. And when we automate a process, we were reduce a lot of work and costs and we can improve quality in them. But what about all of this generative AI and uh, and LLMs and chat GPT and all the rest? Well, the short answer is yes. I think there are going to be some great opportunities here and there are organizations that are already doing so. Now, some are using these LLMs and uh, generative AI tools more on the back end. Right. So I see a lot of tech and service providers that are saying, well, how could I use this to improve my call center, my documentation generation, my my sales and marketing efforts. But we are seeing generative AI use cases on the clinical development process itself. One of the low hanging fruits is kind of leaned into the core strength of uh, of generative AI, and that's around content generation. We actually generate quite a bit of content for clinical trials. We generate structured patient safety reports that we write up based on study data. We generate regulatory submissions as bodies of text based on data that we've generated in the trial. We try to generate um, summaries for patients in terms of what was learned in the trial at different uh, learning levels. Any of those instances of generating narrative text can be accelerated and improved using these types of LLMs and uh, generative AI tools. Now, 
We're not going to rely entirely on them. These things have hallucinations. They make stuff up. Um, and they're very convincing when they make stuff up. But the way we generate a lot of narratives in clinical trials today is we'll have a person write it, and then it goes off to a clinician to review it. And so the place for AI today is just to replace that first step in the process. In doing so, I think we'll see an improvement in cycle time, more consistency in writing style, um, and a reduction in cost. So I, I definitely think we got to be careful of chat, GPT, and AI. It does lie. It loves to exaggerate. It's more human than not sometimes. And it's very convincing, right? I thought you were going to worry about uh, what is a chaos GPT, which was a uh, an auto GPT that was created uh, with 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 two jobs to do. One was to uh, destroy humanity, and the second is to destroy itself. Um, like you know, these things are incredible. They they seem very smart, but they are just using the world's data. Um, they're not creating new data and insights. They're just incredibly agile at scraping through and and drawing off of the insights that are out there and representing it to us and really uh, clever and smart ways. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be an interesting time, but you're right. I think for right now, there is definitely a lot of hallucinating. I do think that's going to start to go away. I think we're going to see more of these LLMs that are trained on specific data sets, on legal libraries, on medical libraries that can really get very smart in a very specific domain. And um, when it gives us an answer, hopefully as they uh, as they keep on crawling through those, uh, those different data sources, we'll see a lot less of the hallucinating. But for now, yeah, uh, let's just say uh, to the kids out there, if you're going to submit a report coming off of ChatGPT, you better proofread it. Yeah, they might uh, just add something in there. You know, when you're looking to write me an amazing book report on XYZ and and they just will put a few added uh, hyperboles in there that don't exist, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So tell us uh, some unforeseeable challenges you see uh, in the next few years, uh, you know, whether it's cost constraints, uh, getting participants, uh, you know, what do you see in the landscape coming forward? We're in a really wonky time right now, Michael. You know, here we are in 23, coming out of the pandemic in terms of the economy right now. So we've got in this particular space, I mentioned a lot of different stakeholders in the beginning. And all those stakeholders have different challenges right now than they had 18 months ago. Biotech companies are still struggling for funding that maybe they were uh, really enjoying very easy access to two years ago. And that means it's really hard for them to get clinical trials up and running because they are so capital intensive. When a mid-stage biotech company is raising money, a lot of that money is just getting poured right back out the door into running a clinical trial. Large pharma companies are also shuffling and reprioritizing a lot of their medicines right now because of an unpredictable reimbursement environment that lies ahead. The Inflation Reduction Act that was uh, approved in the U.S. last year includes some really dramatic reforms and changes in how reimbursement and pricing is going to be negotiated in this country. And that has uh, has really shaken how a lot of pharma companies are now re-looking at their medicines and development and reprioritizing some of those medicines because when it comes to CMS, 
Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, there's new types of price negotiation that they never had to confront or, uh, or navigate before. Our research sites that we talked about that we're so dependent on have a crazy hiring and staffing situation right now. Um, you know, two years ago, three years ago, those sites were afraid of being insolvent and were, were looking for, you know, short-term loans and bailouts. And today they are just saturated. They can't take on anymore. There's no more staffing uh, that they can find to fill their gaps. And when they have staff study coordinators, there's a high amount of turnover there. And so it's hard for us to get new studies up and running just because of the, the particular conditions. It's so different than it was just two short years ago. And I, I think it's gonna start to level out, right? I think some of the pause and new study starts may actually be good for our research sites just to digest the, the trials that they have given their resource constraints. And then hopefully we'll start to see things really normalize quite a bit. You know, a lot of our sites are also struggling with a lot of the new technologies that we're introducing in our trials. And, and I know because I'm one of the people introducing a lot of those new technologies. And for some sites, uh, they're looking at those as relief. And in other cases, they're looking at them as wreaking havoc in terms of some of their operations and familiarity. A lot of these technologies are meant to make trials more accessible, easier to understand, electronic consent, remote patient monitoring, use of video, or other extensions of services using home health or other capabilities to try to keep people from having to travel to a site for every visit. If people want to go to a site for a visit, they should always have that choice. But if they can't get to a site for a visit, they shouldn't be denied the ability to participate in research. But unfortunately, the way we implement a lot of those tools sometimes shifts burden from the participant to the site. And, you know, it's um, it's kind of like matter that can never be created or destroyed. It just gets shifted around in different forms. We have to do better at anticipating and managing burden. We're kind of coming towards the end. We still got time, but I want to flip the script uh, and just love to know, how did you get into this field? Perfectly straight line. I grew up as a child dreaming of a future, working in clinical research, went to college knowing I was going to work in clinical research. And I'm laughing, Michael, because I don't know anyone in this field that came in wanting to work in clinical research. You know, we all landed here through different pathways. Most of us weren't even exposed to this field existing as, uh, as a high school student or even as a college student. Um, for me, I was a musician. Um, and I studied music, but I actually did have plans and, and went to medical school. And it was in medical school that I started to get exposed more and more to the field of public health and epidemiology. Epidemiology, of course, being a field that prior to the pandemic, nobody knew what that was. Uh, but all of a sudden, you know, I became the cool kid during a pandemic. Um, so working in epidemiology and in public health, I uh, got exposed to a lot around clinical trials and drug development. It was part of the education that I had gotten during a, a graduate work at Columbia in this particular field, their program leaned very heavy in making sure that you understood pharmacoepidemiology and these nuances of developing a new medicine. And that just, that's what hooked me, right? I looked at just the economics around it were crazy, 
right? The amount of money that was spent to develop a new medicine, the opportunity for technology in this process. And it was just always about the convergence of new things, new science, new medical breakthroughs, new tools to make drug testing run faster. And that that sort of got me hooked. Uh, so from there, I, I started to um, work more in research settings, working on clinical trials at the VA and in other settings. Um, and then from there, moved into industry and honestly, have never looked back. It's been a, a fabulous three decades now working in this industry. But it's funny, like, I, I don't know anyone that kind of came into this industry in a deliberate way. Um, but, you know, the folks that are here are incredibly committed to this uh, future of, of getting medical breakthroughs faster for patients who are waiting. Yeah, I, I, I get a sense. I, I, I know some of your um, community members, and it really is, there's a gravitational force for people like myself that aren't part of it, that want to, that you guys are inclusive. There's an inclusivity of it to your group that I see really fascinating with, um, you know, so I think you guys have something going on and, and, and it's really exciting. You have, a, not only do you do, you're committed, you're passionate, but you're also having a good time, I think. And, and you're in it. And that's, I think, you know, I know Gil Bash, I know some of the other really good friends and I want to be a part of it. I don't know. Maybe you'll let me somehow be a part of, it. I don't know how that is, but you're making clinical trials fun. Michael, there's there's one rule. It's like Fight Club. There's one rule. There's one rule to come into the clinical research field, and that's you know a commitment to doing what you say you're going to do. Um, and so, I think in our field, we're very receptive to new talent. People are excited to welcome new people into the field, um, and most are excited to see new things and new technologies. Their their big concern is uh, they don't want people to oversell. They don't want people to overpromise. If you say you're going to do something. They expect you to deliver on it. If you can do that, come on in. The water is fine. It's a very satisfying field. It's impactful. And there's always new science to keep it dynamic and interesting. Okay. Well, I won't make any promises that I'm going to um, uh, solve dementia or Alzheimer's coming in. I, I don't have a cure for that. But but anyway, that was really silly. It's a bad comment. Um, but any any sort of finishing insights or thoughts for our audience? You know, for those who are working in this field, a lot of these things around innovative new approaches can feel daunting. Some are overwhelmed by the opportunities and others don't even know where to begin when looking at a process that we've done for years a certain way. And most of us know we can do these things better, but making dramatic changes is daunting. And what I often encourage folks is that is to remember that incremental counts. The aggregate of incremental changes can be radical and, and remarkable, but it's hard for us to all go to work tomorrow and try to make remarkable, dramatic changes in how we're operating. But if everybody goes to work tomorrow and is committed to just taking one step forward in terms of progress, in terms of trying to embrace and understand a new technology, a new way of doing their business, listening to one of your colleagues if they're suggesting some other alternative or an idea that they were learning about, if we can all take one step forward tomorrow, the aggregate across our ecosystem is going to be remarkable. Wow. I love that. It really is that 1%. I know this is big and cyclists and performance athletes, that one, that those incrementals 
over X, you know, make exponential change, like, uh, you know, um, fascinating by you utilizing that as a comment. Uh, I'll have to remember that. Um, how can our audience get a hold of you? How can they find you? Well, I am best found on LinkedIn. Uh, so check out uh, my name, Craig Lipset. Give me a, a follower connection on LinkedIn. Um, I love connecting with people there. I'm also on Twitter and other social channels like uh, like most people have or used to be. But uh, LinkedIn's definitely the easiest place. You know, I'm often at a lot of different conferences, um, sharing some different thoughts and ideas and perspectives, conferences in the clinical trial space, some in the health tech space, if there's a good lean back into clinical research. Uh, this month, the DIA annual meeting in Boston is coming up. And this fall, I love events like uh, DFARM in September or the CNS Summit in November. All three of those happen to be in Boston. But being a Boston sports fan, I'm, I'm okay with that. Cool. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Craig, for coming on today and, and just taking it away on clinical trials and clinical trials innovation. It's been phenomenal. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Michael. Appreciate it. Friends, it's been such a great journey today on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Feel free to follow us. Just type in Planetary Health First, Mars Next on the internet. Until next time, 